But I think that people often get into these fields thinking that either they're going to make a lot of money or that it's going to be this cure-all fix to people's problems. I know a lot of massage therapists for sure get into it because they want a flexible schedule. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that curates East Asian medicine and methods through the power of conversation. Really potent questions can bring a feeling of fear or dread. They unanchor from the safe moorings of the known. Good questions, they're looking for trouble. What is up around that bend? Just why is it we're not supposed to eat a certain food or behave a particular way or believe the central tenant story of the group to which we belong? Potent questions are not the oppositional rebellion of an American teenager. They're more like prophets pointing toward another worldview entirely. They are troubling in that you might have to change your life in ways that could leave you unrecognizable to yourself. Potent questions just might dissolve the solidity of your worldview. They should probably come with a warning label. Potent questions will make your family uncomfortable. Your friends might get nervous around them. For sure, they will come and haunt you in the quiet hours of the night because they are like catalytic enzymes. They break and rearrange the bonds that hold the structures of thought and belief in place. Good questions are troublesome enough, they easily conjure up the feeling of being stupid. They don't come with easy or pat answers. You might need to change how you think, and this is where it gets tricky, because change is an invitation into uncertainty. And the ego would like to look bright and shiny on the answer side of a potent question, but there's no way to guarantee delivery on that. So, any potent question? It also includes, are you willing to find out? You know, there's a good reason why the map makers back during the voyages of discovery would draw a border to the known world and then add the warning, there be dragons here. For sure, at the edge of the known, we lack the capacity to describe it. Transversing the uncharted, it takes a bit of both surrender and courage. The journey, often enough worthwhile. In today's conversation with Jason Brazil, we delve into his process of wanting to better understand the channels by taking his experience as a massage therapist and marrying it to his interest in the acupuncture channel system. He's got some keen insights gleaned from looking through the lens of the dual clock opposites, and he's charted out what he discovered on that voyage of discovery. We'll get into that in a moment. Stay with us. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. 
do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi, folks. I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Welcome to Shop Talk. In this portion of the podcast, we are bringing you roughly 15 minutes of practical clinical methods, perspectives, and advice that has its work boots on. This section is all about practical material that you can begin to investigate the next time that you walk into clinic. Additionally, visit the show notes page for supporting materials from this week's guest on Shop Talk. All right, roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. 
Today in Shop Talk, I'd like to spend a little time talking with you about cultivation. You know, we often talk about cultivation as an important part of being a practitioner. And as you're listening to this, perhaps you'll find yourself in agreement that cultivation, developing who we are, it's an important aspect of practicing acupuncture. I'd like to take a moment now to invite you to think about the first three things that come to mind when you think about cultivation and service of being a better practitioner. Pause here for just a moment. Don't think too hard about it. Just notice the first three things that pop into your mind. I suspect the things that just came to mind, either there are things that you're doing or things that you think you should be doing. And I wonder how many of you came up with running a business on your short list of cultivated practices. I found in the years that I've had the good fortune to practice acupuncture that running my own practice has been instrumental in keeping me honest, showing me where my blind spots are and where I'm fearful. And perhaps most in particular, where I'm unskilled or I'm clumsy. I found that running my own business requires me to be accountable in ways that I could easily avoid if I was an employee. And that the residual issues that I've had with money, power, and authority from my youth, they've shown up in countless ways in my clinical work until I realized that money was not inherently bad, but rather my lack of ability to make it that colored my attitude toward it. That appropriate power abdicated is actually a kind of misuse of power, and that authority is not always corrupt or self-serving. There are those places where, because of our education, because of our experience, we carry a certain authority, and how we carry that and what we do with it, that makes all the difference. Running a business is not something separate from the practice of medicine. This might be one of the biggest learnings that I've had over the years. I thought the most important thing was learning to be a good practitioner, like being good in clinic, like knowing my clinical stuff. For a long time, I thought running a practice was a sideline. It was the thing that, oh, you got to do this so I can do the other thing, i.e. having a clinical practice. But it turns out running a business is not at all separate from the practice of medicine. It's actually an integrated aspect of the clinical work, and it's helped me to remove the false assumption that business and medicine were two separate things. You know, just like we see the mind and the body as a connected whole, the practice of medicine and the business of medicine, it's actually an integrated whole. Having a business will, at some point, lead you to your uncomfortable blind spots. It'll put you dead in the crosshairs of your fears. Trust me, I know this. Running a business will ask you to be accountable to yourself and to others with an honesty that at times you're not sure that you got. And it'll show you the attitudes, beliefs, and misconceptions that are sorely in need of an update. And all too easily glossed over with the thought of, I hate business and I'm no good at it and I shouldn't have to do this. 
and I wish I could just practice medicine and not have to muck with business. But I found that there is a lot in this world that I hated, and I hated it maybe first and foremost because I wasn't good at it. What's more, I wasn't willing to learn. I haven't found it very easy to look at personal deficiency dead in the eye and decide to own it or do something about it. Which is why I think it is indeed true that as an acupuncturist, we need to attend to our self-cultivation, absolutely, because many of the obstacles that are in the way of a successful practice, we put them there ourselves. I want to take a glimpse at a few that have been my teachers over the years. These are mostly in the form of questions, because I find that questions are a lot more useful than answers a lot of the time, because the problem with answers is that you stop questioning and you stop looking to see what else might be there. So I hope that you'll find these questions I have here to uh, be helpful in your ongoing inquiry. So first, let's talk about success. It's a big one, isn't it? Success. Ooh. A lot of us, I suspect, have some real emotional juice around that one. So what about success? What does success look like to you? Does success have a money goal? Is there a social good goal, a kind of status that you're hoping others will grant to you? Does success mean that you've got a kind of acceptance in your family or your friend group? And can you name what would be around you, what your life would look like when success has arrived? What does it feel like? What does success for you feel like? What are the emotions that you would constantly live within? What do your relationships look like? And what do they feel like? And maybe even more to the point, how would you sleep different if you had success? What feelings that are troublesomely present now would be diminished or maybe even absent if you had the feelings that go with success? And money, what about money? How much do you need? Is there an arrived number, a number that says, this is enough? Have you sat down with a spreadsheet and run the numbers? And if you have, how did you get to that number? How do you know it's accurate? Maybe even more to the point because we have to live with ourselves and who we think we are. How do you feel about having the amount of money in the bank or regularly being generated by your practice that you feel like you really need. Again, what is the amount that's enough? And if you had that, how would others who you care about feel about you having that kind of a financial situation? When I first started practicing medicine, I thought, well, Chinese medicine, it can treat anybody, it can treat anything, and I should be able to do that. I've come to find that it's very helpful to know who are the people that you want to work with? Not the people that you think you should work with, but who are the people who actually light you up when they walk into their office? Is there a kind of person that when you see their name on your daily schedule, you feel your, your stomach drop out a little bit or you start feeling a little bit anxious? And likewise, are there people when you see their name, you're excited to see them? 
it makes a difference when you have a practice that you feel good within and to know that you're serving the kinds of people that you like to serve. And again, maybe you think that you should be capable and willing to serve anybody who walks into your office. That, after all, is what Sun Samyao suggests we do. We should treat anybody, regardless of condition, regardless of finance, regardless of situation. It's a nice image, but I'm not sure that it's actually the best use of my time and skill. I've discovered that there are some folks I'm pretty good at helping them. Others, even establishing some kind of rapport, it doesn't go so well. If you've got a passion for a certain crowd, then you're likely to be able to serve them pretty well. You know, in marketing, they say, if your product is for everybody, then you've got a nondescript commodity, something that's probably made by the lowest cost producer overseas. It means that you're in a race to the bottom. And I'm not sure that any of us really want to win the low-cost, low-value Olympics. Think for a moment about a product or a service that you're happy to spend your time and your money on. Maybe it's a class you take or a restaurant you love, maybe clothing that makes you happy in your skin. Are you thinking about the money that you spend or are you thinking about the experience that that money has enabled you to have? We don't trade money for things. We trade money for value. And I know for myself, all too often, I have thought that people spend their money for acupuncture. Really, they're spending their money on the value of what they receive from you and your work. So with that in mind, I invite you to take some time after this little shop talk and consider the value that your patients receive from their perspective. So often we're focused on what we do or the techniques we know and are comfortable using. It's all important, of course, but in the cultivative aspect of business as part of your practice, it's really helpful to understand the value of what your patients are receiving from their point of view. It takes a bit of empathy on our part to understand that. I'll be exploring more about creating a practice that is a unique reflection of you with Brenda Lee on Saturday, June the 24th. This will be a free Ask Us Anything session with two people at different stages of their practice investigating the same question. And then we invite you to join us with any questions or comments that you might have. Visit www.geological.com slash practice to sign up and join us in this conversation. Jason Brazil, welcome to Geological. Hello, Michael. So good to be here with you today. Delighted to have you. Hey, you wrote a book. I wrote a book. Why on God's green earth would you write a book? That's a lot of work. It was about two years of work, which from what I've been told is kind of a short time to write a book. And uh, I think maybe the other question that we should ask is, why the hell write a book about East Asian medicine when you're a massage therapist? That's a great question. Why? <laughs> why? why would you do that? Why? I've been interested in the subject for quite a long time, and I practice a lot of shiatsu in my bodywork practice. And I was confused as hell about all the interweaving theories and approaches and viewpoints 
as you know, East Asian medicine is this huge canon of literature and also practice. Canon. I like how you say canon. I think of it more like a hairball. Yes. Yeah. It's this multi-layered commentary. I mean, you look at the you have the unshold tradition of the Nanjing, you know, and the commentaries over the eons and years. It's like, man, there are so many synonymous viewpoints, but more conflicting viewpoints. And essentially, all these practitioners for the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years have been arguing with each other about what works and what doesn't. It's wild, isn't it? It's absolutely wild. And so as a person who's, um, I'm really a lay person when you think about it. I happen to have a lot of manual skill and I'm curious, but as far as a scholar, that's not really my strong suit. So the writing of my book was really a way for me to process and untangle that hairball more than anything. I wanted to present people who may be curious like myself and my clients and maybe other practitioners with a less tangled hairball of East Asian medicine. That's awesome. Well, one of the things that I always appreciate about people who are taking a, a, a run at, you know, swinging at, explaining or in some way communicating about East Asian medicine in, in an everyday kind of language is it's really tricky because while we might be using words in English, we're using them in different ways than you would usually use them in the common parlance. And so being able to talk about it, you know, we often hear about like, like lay people as some kind of uh, criticism. Well, that's just a lay person. What the hell do they know? Well, lay people know a lot, right? Because we're just everyday people and we know a lot. We know about what makes our life work. We know about what makes it not work. You know, we're not stupid. We may not be scholars, but we're not stupid. And there's something about simplicity that I think is very powerful. And there's something about, like you were saying, digging into it to unwind it for yourself. I mean, it's a super generous act to go in, see what you got, put it down in print, and then show it to the world. Yes, and be willing to stand up to the criticism that comes with it as well. I didn't think of it so much as this generous gift to the world necessarily as more like it was a process that I could refine myself with than the me that results is the gift to the world. The book's like a calling card. I really think everybody should write a book at some point in their life, whether it's 10 pages or a thousand, because the writing is a great clarification process. And, and you really hit the nail on the head. Discovering yourself and how it applies to you, how it applies to your life and in simple terms, how does this make my life better? How does me studying this make my life better? I think as, as clinicians, what we're really trying to do is simplify difficult things for our clients and our patients so they feel better at the end of the day. Well, and maybe for ourselves too, because you know, you're also a clinician, you work as a massage therapist. It's so easy to get confused in clinic. You know, we think we're seeing something, oh yeah, this is what this is. And then you get started on working on it and you realize, wait, there's a lot more here. And then there's all the damn stories in our head. Right. All the theory. And that's something that I've heard you say multiple times that really has stuck with me is that when, when I'm in clinic and I think the theory is 
suggest that I should do this or that, I'm fucked. I mean, there's other people, maybe theory works for them, but yeah, for sure. When I'm starting to lean on, well, according to the books, you know, I know I'm not paying attention to what's in front of me. Yeah. Isn't it all about engendering a sense of presence between yourself and the person on the table? I mean, it, it seems deceptively simple. We're just trying to strip away what's all the theories, all of the self-judgments, all the prejudices, all the thoughts, and just get to what's right here in front of us. When I push on this spot, when I put a needle in this spot, what arises? What's happening now? Is this helping? Simple, not easy. You know, because in, in some way, we need to have something that guides us. You know, so often the question comes up for me, what am I being guided by? Now, you're a very hands-on practitioner. So let me put that question to you. you got your hands on people. What, what are you guided by? Well, I think when every practitioner starts on their journey, they have to be guided by the theory a little bit because the sensitivity isn't quite there yet. There's a certain expertise that comes with time just as a function of repetition and doing it. So I'd answer that question differently now than when I first started. When I first started, I was just trying to drink from a fire hose and learn as much information as I could and try to apply some of the theory to what I was doing. And as I've practiced more, I've, I really feel that I'm guided more by an inner knowing than I am by the theory. And if anything, the theory and the, the thoughts that come into my mind are just supporting evidence for what I'm feeling. And there's a, in my book, I talk a little bit about how a person can start to have a conversation with their body and with different organ systems, with different limbs, different acupuncture points. And so I think about when I have my hands on a body and I press on a certain point, or I notice that a person's taking a breath, I sense this conversation happening, that when I press here, the deep breath happens. It's almost like the, body, the person's body is saying, ah, can I have some more of that, please? Or, oh, no, I'm clenching. I'm guarded. I don't want that. That's touching on that engaging vitality sort of work, right? Whether these really replicable, simple responses from the body that tell you if you're on the right track or maybe on a different track. So the more I practice, the more I listen, the more I listen, the more I learn, and the simpler my techniques become. Isn't that funny? I have found over time, my work gets simpler too. And, and sometimes I think it's because I'm lazy or I'm just habituated. Here's some things, they seem to work. Oh, that worked last time, I'll, I'll do it again this time. Or, you know, something, something similar, or at least that rhymes with that. And at the same time, I suspect on a good day, the work is simpler because there's a lot of external noise that I'm not paying attention to because I know I don't need to pay attention to it. You know, the interesting thing about paying attention that I have found over the years 
is, yes, there's what's important and to pay your attention there. But the other side of that is, what can I, at least for the moment, push off to the side and go, this probably doesn't apply right now? Because that makes things a lot easier. Yeah, it absolutely does. It, there's, We're in the information age. Well, are we in the information age or are we in the age of more noise than we've ever had before? Our problem now isn't finding information. It's sorting through the information that we already have and coming back to what's important. Finding information. Right, right. Well, hey. So we're just information-seeking beings, right? We're, we're curious. I think humans are curious. It's interesting. Humans are information-seeking beings. That's the first time I've heard somebody say that. I've heard people say we're storytelling beings. I completely agree. We're you know hungry beings. We want to eat. We're sexual beings. We want plenty of that. Information-seeking beings. I hadn't, until you just mentioned it, that hadn't occurred to me, but I, I suspect you're right. And, and, and maybe why we're so enamored with all the technology we have. Sure, sure. I mean, what's a story but taking all of these pieces of information and making a pattern out of them that seems to make sense to us. And we are enamored with the technology. We, we have more access on our smartphones than, you know, in one day than a person a thousand years ago would have gotten in multiple lifetimes. Our biology can't have caught up to that. You know, I don't know. I really don't know. For sure, our biology has evolved over time without this stuff. How this interacts with our biology, I think a lot of people are asking that question right now. And... You know, I mean, technology has brought us a lot of great stuff. It's brought us a huge amount of trouble. So at the moment, it seems like we're throwing a lot of shade on it. Is our biology not up to it? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, for sure that this little device that we hold in our hand is a dopamine machine like we've never had before. So maybe as as practitioners, we might ask the question, what are the clinical results that we see from technology, the overuse of technology maybe? Or do people feel better when they're on technology 24-7? Do they look better? I don't think so. Do they sound better? No. And whereas like the clinical results that we see from somebody who swims every day in a natural body of water or that goes to sleep with the sun and wakes up with the sun. What's the result? I think that's, it's all we can do is make these broad generalizations and say, okay, well, it's probably better to put your feet on the ground and probably not look at your phone so much. And maybe we have to even simplify that further. When I, as a practitioner, swim every day, and when I put my feet on the ground, and when I get in tune with natural cycles, man, my work seems to flow a lot easier I seem to have a lot more energy and I seem to be a lot less stressed than when I'm on the phone. And how can we help people learn about themselves and learn about their own cycles and their own healing journey and process if we're not exploring it also? Well, this very much gets into a very fundamental Chinese medicine idea of yangsheng, 
of, of self-cultivation, of taking care of ourselves. If we're not taking care of ourselves, it makes it very challenging to take care of others. Right. If we're not learning, we got nothing to teach. And we're, we're, we're building chi, right? By our practices, there's this whole beautiful lineage from tons of East Asian countries about chi cultivation. How do we manage our life force? How do we manage our relationships with people? There's as many practices from around the world as you can imagine, as there are people. But it seems to be a fairly agreed upon point that life force cultivation is the root of the healer's capacity to do their work. And the uh, like even Yogananda, for example, you, you ever studied Paramahansa Yogananda? I have, I've heard of him. I have not studied him. Well, he, he was from India. He came to the United States in 1920 and taught scientific breathing, yoga meditation, et cetera, to, to Westerners and uh, among many other teachers in that time frame. But Yogananda said the greatest healing method is the one that stimulates the life force. Every other healing method is secondary. But doctors still need jobs. People still need medicine. You know, you still, there's a place for everybody and everything. But if a practitioner can tap on the life force of that person on the table, that's going to be the juiciest clinical result. You know, what really, really supercharges that person's life. It makes profound changes in people. You know, I think this is why, especially if we're using needles, but also just using hands, let's just say, let's just call it effective treatment, however we're applying that treatment. Sometimes people just have this look in their eyes, like, I can't remember the last time I felt like this. And they so often think that it came from outside. Oh, that practitioner, they did this thing, and, and now I feel this way. So it came from that practitioner or that method or that, that kind of a treatment. And that has something to do with it. But if the patient didn't have that capacity on the inside then it wouldn't have come out. It's all, it always comes out of our patient. Even something like a surgery, which can clear up a lot of stagnation or fix some things that really need to be put into alignment, uh, it's still that patient healing themselves and taking that in and uh, seeing what their life force does with it that, that makes for the healing. It certainly is that. You know, I've read a bit through your book. Love the title, by the way. Body constellations. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I just want to stick a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that. But in reading the, just the first part of your book, in, in addition to talking about self-cultivation, you talk about a very essential ingredient that we don't talk about a whole lot in Chinese medicine, although I think it's there. You talk about love. I like how you said that, essential ingredient. Can you weigh or measure love? You know, how scientific can you get with the concept of love? But everybody that I know knows what love is to them. Love is the binding force between things. In my view, love is what attracts particles together so they can make atoms and molecules and cells and organs and organ systems and the whole body as it relates to other bodies. And so when I love my patient, 
when I love the practitioner who's working on me, there's a binding force that's happening. And it's almost a tension, right? It's the dance. If two people are dancing and there's no binding force, there's no dynamic tension, no push and pull, then the dance doesn't really happen. You know, the handshake, the best handshake is the firm one, right? Where both people are there. They're both present. Everybody knows the dead fish handshake. You know, there's no meeting. There's no sticking. And so I think, and I talk about this in the book, but if we don't love our patients as practitioners, then where's the tension? Where's, where's the healing motive, the movement? It doesn't mean we love them romantically, obviously, but it does mean that there's, there's care, real care. I love your description, love as a binding force. It's one of those things I hear it and I go, oh yeah, that, that's right. Huh. Hadn't thought about that before. Do you have any pets? Oh yeah, we do. We got a couple, we got a few cats. Yeah. And I would assume that you love your cats. Oh yeah. They're great. So you're bound to those cats. <laughs> True enough. You're bound to them. And, and it could even be said that you have an attraction to them. They're attracted to you. They're attracted to you because you love them back. Well, and we feed them. Yeah. That's a binding force. Isn't food the surest form of love? That's love, man. Tell you what. Tell you what. What part of the country are you from? Central Texas. Central Texas. Tell you what. We say that kind of thing in Missouri here, too. Tell you what. I've noticed the similarity in accents. I really have. On that point of love, I really have to reference the book, let's say, because it just occurs to me. Let me know if you thought that this was accurate or if you have a different perspective. All of our hairball of East Asian medicine is a result of each one of those practitioners' individual love for their patients. Why would you write something down if you didn't care that it was shared? Love for them, themselves, love for their patients, love for their communities, love for their, their country. Their students, doctors in the future, passing along something that's useful to other people. Right. I don't, I don't know of another motive force that's strong enough to cause somebody to dedicate their entire life to a subject or to a pursuit of knowledge like that. I mean, you got to love it. There's, otherwise, you become a shell of a person who's just following the theory and applying the theory, as you said. Well, I wonder how well it works over time if you're taking the ideas of other people, let's call it theory, applying it through some kind of mechanical way of applying it and not having a dialogue with it, not learning back from it. There's a big brouhaha in our profession about how many people are not practicing after five years. And I wonder if a piece of that is like not taking the training wheels off, like not being able to take the theory and then see where it's pointing and then just go for that. I don't know. I, I don't know. I know, you know, I, I mean, attrition from professions, I mean, I know a lot of ex-lawyers as well. 
So not, not to get into the politics of the whole thing, because I don't want to do that. But I want to underscore the point that you make, that if, if you love it, if it starts to speak to you, if we bring that caring and connection into our work, it, you know, it's like having cats around. It generates a warm, fuzzy feeling. Mm-hmm. It's the spice of life. The, uh, the structure of theory and methods and historical basis, tradition and practice, that's all the box. That's the hive, right? But it has to be filled with the honey of love and practice and work. And, you know, everybody's working together towards this common goal. The structure and the, the juice is necessary, I think. And well stated. That's really well stated. Thank you. But it is simple, right? I think anybody who's listening can understand that. I think often we want to overcomplicate things. Well, why is there such an attrition in the acupuncture field or the massage therapy field? I can tell you this for sure. Massage therapists, I've heard different statistics, but the most recent one I heard is that the average massage therapist lasts seven months. Wow. Like very short time. I'm going to call seven months not even getting started. I agree. Absolutely. And I am not sure why that is. I think I'm, I'm with you on my lack of certainty on why that is. But I think one good reason why that might happen is because a person got into it for the wrong reasons. Not necessarily the over-application of theory relative to, to practice and, and understanding, though that, that must be the case also. But I think that people often get into these fields thinking that either they're going to make a lot of money or that it's going to be this cure-all fix to people's problems. Or that it w- I know a lot of massage therapists for sure get into it because they want a flexible schedule. They want to make all their money on two days a week and go and travel the rest of the time. And if we're talking about clinical results, as you know, it takes hours in the clinic. It takes thousands and thousands of hours of dedicated presence, focused presence to begin to see clinical results. You know, what is it they say that it's like, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, sure. But to become, from my understanding, a proficient acupuncturist, it takes like 30 years to become really proficient. I don't, I I don't think it takes 30 years. Well, maybe it takes you 30 years. If you're slow like me, maybe it takes 30 years. My suspicion is after 10 years, something kind of quickens. Mm. Mm. Do you think that's a function of hours in the clinic or do you think that's just a, a growing and a maturing as a person? Probably a bit of both. That's a really good distinction. Yeah, we start this process from different points in our life. I know massage therapists who started when they were 17 years old. And I know massage therapists that started when they're 50. I interned myself to a chiropractor for a while who started doing massage work after he'd been a chiropractor for 22 years full-on practice, clinical practice for 22 years, and then became a massage therapist. Wow. That's an interesting transformation. And yeah, I mean, what he brings to the game from the get-go would would be very different than a 22-year-old just graduated 
I'm going to make me some money two days a week. Yeah. 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 And, you know, there's also that thing about, are you learning from your experience? I think it was Bruce Lee, and I'm going to slaughter this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Something to the effect of, you know, you can practice a kick 10,000 times, but if you're practicing the same kick, you're not learning anything. Right? It's like you got to do it. And like, all right, how do I recalibrate that? You know, you do it again. Oh, yeah, do this. Or do it again. Yeah, move the balance like that. Right? If you do the same thing over and over without somehow learning from each iteration, then, yeah, I, I suspect not much happens. But if you learn from each iteration, uh, you know, that's, that's when stuff starts to happen. And that just takes time and attention. And intention, exactly. If I can help you out with that quote, which I'm probably not going to get it perfect either. But I like the, I love the way that you said that because it's almost like the, I think we arrive at the same point like we always do. But he said something like, I, I don't fear the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks one time. I fear the man that has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Right. Yeah. So it's like, okay break it down to what is the kick that we're practicing as clinicians? Well, the kick is somebody comes into our office and they have a problem. We get paid to solve problems for people. That's right. People don't care about acupuncture. They don't care about massage. They don't care about any of it. They care about getting rid of the thing that they walked in with. Yeah. At a reasonable rate and in a reasonable amount of time to them. That's what they pay for. Hopefully a pleasant experience. Hopefully so. Yeah. So somebody, the kick we're practicing, somebody comes in, they got a problem. And our kick is to, as best as possible in their language and in their experience, make a difference in the problem that they came in for. And maybe if we're doing that well and we can see how it's important to them, they can feel how important it is to us. And they learn a whole lot more than they bargained for. And Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. In their language and with their experience. High five, man. That, yes, I think that's really important. And I say that because I wasted years 
maybe they're not wasted because hopefully I learned from it. But I spent years trying to teach people a little bit of basic Chinese medicine 101 so they could understand what was happening. Well, that time might have been better spent trying to understand what happened for them in their language so that I could follow them more closely in their healing process. Here's another place where I screwed up a lot. They'd come in and say things like, well, I'm a lot better now. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that acupuncture really helped. And I'd ask them to tell me more. And they'd go, well, you know, I went to my chiropractor and they did this and that. Da, 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 now my problem's gone. And, you know, my ego wants to say, well, yeah, but what about the acupuncture? But the healer goes, oh, they're cottoning to this thing that they got from the chiropractor. Okay, let's follow that. Maybe there's something I can do with acupuncture that will like ride along with whatever they're thinking in their experience and in their language so they get better. Yeah, that is such a vital piece. And, you know, it's one of the things that I, I think you bring out in your book. You know, you've got your own way of storytelling. You've got your own language. You've got your own perspective that you brought into this because, you know, clearly you're interested in the work you do. You've been thinking about how to talk about it. And, you know, you do that in the book. But again, own perspective, own language, which brings me back to the title of your book, Body Constellations. Constellation is a great word. You know, I think about being a kid and looking at the night sky, you know, and you're hanging out with people that are older than you and they go, see the Big Dipper? And you're going, huh, what? Right? And then they point it out to you and you're like, wow, is it always up there? You know, then they point out Scorpio or Orion or, you know, something. And it's like, wow. So tell me about constellations and, and how, how you brought that into your, into your book and into your work. Tell me more about constellations, man. I like stars. Yeah, you're a sailor, right? So you know how to navigate by the stars. I am a sailor, but I'm not that kind of sailor. So I don't do like big ocean passages, although I've had people on the podcast that do. No, I'm I'm a <laughs> I'm a dinghy sailor, and not dinghy like crazy. Although I might be crazy too, but I, I sail small boats, like small racing boats around the buoys, that kind of thing. So we are paying attention, but like not to the stars. It's more like to the wind and where it's coming from, and and where there's more pressure and where there's less pressure, and you know that kind of thing. Sure. Okay. So you're looking at patterns, and you're following those patterns, right? And isn't that what a constellation is? So. So the title, maybe we can start there. So the title of the book is Body Constellations, The Meridian Map to Awakening Body, Mind, and Spirit. So the channels from a practitioner standpoint, man, that's like the great mystery, right? It's where, where novice practitioners begin and master practitioners end. I don't know if we end. I, th this channel thing is, it keeps unfolding. Yes, it does. And I think the reason it keeps unfolding is because of how many layers of truth are encoded in this channel map that we've created for ourselves as a, a lineage of East Asian medicine practitioners. So when I look at a map of the channels, I look at my wall chart that has the channels up. I see dots, i.e. points, connected by lines. And to me, that screams like, oh, that's a constellation right there, right? Because we look up at the night skies, you said, and there's the Big Dipper. Well, how do we tell the Big Dipper? They're points of light connected by imaginary lines. 
right? It's totally imaginary. We just made it up. We said, well, that's cons- a consistent enough pattern that we we drew some lines in between there and said, that's a map and we can follow that and we can navigate our our transatlantic cruises by those stars, right? They're, they're that consistent. And I think the channels are that consistent as well. Consistent enough that we can sort of navigate ourselves by. But they do change positions. When you look at a constellation in the sky, it looks static. But as we know, those stars are spinning at rates that you, we can't even possibly imagine. They're so fast. And that's part of what gives us this sense of wonder. You look up at the night sky and somebody older says, that's the Big Dipper. And you're like, well, what's the Big Dipper? And they say, well, you know our sun? Yeah. Well, think about like 40,000 of those suns up there that are all spinning really far away, as far as you could possibly imagine, way further than you could ever travel in your lifetime or in a thousand lifetimes. We're seeing the reflected light of those thousands of dying suns. And they appear to us as the Big Dipper in a pattern that's navigable, followable, replicable. So what comes to my mind when I hear that is like, oh, shit. I am tiny. I am never going to understand all this. But I have a place where I can start right now. And so I thought that really kind of hits the nail on the head for our journey as practitioners. We're never going to understand everything about the channels, not only because they're so far away and so close and so deep and so wide, but because they change. We're information seeking, we're pattern seeking. And so we as a tradition wrote this map, drew this map and started talking about it for all these thousands of years. Because even if we don't understand the channels, we know enough about them to navigate by. Even if we don't understand them, we know enough to navigate by. It's a good enough map. It's good enough. And I like good enough. Good enough gets results. Yeah, well, another thing we like to say here in Missouri, I don't know about you in Central Texas, but we like to say, get her done. Get her done. And, you know, there's something satisfying about knowing and knowing that we know and feeling, I'm speaking for myself, feeling like I understand. It's part of me that really likes that whole intellectual thing. Probably because I'm a small, scrawny guy and I was never good at sports in high school, so I had to, like, use my brain because I couldn't use my brawn. I didn't have much brawn, so... You know, I, I lean toward that intellectual. So there's that. But being able to let go of that a little bit, not get rid of it, just hold it loosely. I don't need to know everything. I need to know just enough. Like you say, to get started. Isn't Jason, isn't that so often the trick with so much is we're thinking about the ending. Oh, I might get, you know, if I if I become a massage therapist, I can work two days a week, make a lot of money, and I'll get what I want in life. And then you get out there and you realize, oh, shit, not at all what I thought. But, yeah, like being able to just get started, like start. That, I think if there's a superpower in the world for anybody, it's being able to start. Mm. Isn't that the, that's the strongest barrier for sure. For me, I can speak to experience. It's just starting something. So like with this book, 
who in their right mind has a, a half-cocked idea to write a book about a subject that they're barely familiar with or haven't even really started mining? Well, uh, I think that when I started, I gave myself permission to learn with a full throttle curiosity. <laughs> I want that on a t-shirt. Full throttle curiosity. You're going to have to write it down. Full, I'm writing it down. Full throttle. You know what? Because I forget what I say. Yeah, okay. That's the name of this podcast. That's the name of this episode. Full throttle curiosity. There you go. So what's so curious about these channels? Well, they're made up for one. That's very curious. We drew some lines among the stars. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. What, uh, what river is straight? <laughs> you know what I mean? You tell me what, what blood vessel is straight. Yeah. It's so funny when patients have that experience of getting better and then they get worse and then they get better and then they get worse. And they're like, I thought I was getting better. Then it got worse. And then it got better. And it's like, it seems to be getting better and worse. And I will take them out of the treatment room into the waiting room where we can look outside and there's trees and this and that. I go, you show me a straight line in nature. Show me one. And they're like, <gasps> There's no straight lines in nature. Go get back on that table. <laughs> now that might be the most valuable clinical tip I've ever heard. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I mean, this is the fun of clinic, right? Sometimes stuff comes up and it's like, where the hell? From? Yeah, absolutely. And, and really magical stuff happens, doesn't it? The stuff that we had no intention of doing or making happen and it happens. And we just say, Oh, cool. I stuck some needles in you or I, I pressed on your neck. And then the next time you come in, you made up with your partner, you know, who you've been fighting with for 10 years on and off. It's like, how can I say I did that? There's no way. And I happened to be there and there happened to be a correlation and said, well, okay, so you release all the tension, the excess, in other words, along the gallbladder channel. And the person gets out of their head and gets more into their heart because they're opposites on the clock, as our practitioners will know, right? Gallbladder and heart, logic and heart, right? Logic and spirit. So you release all the excess in the logic. And then, then maybe that chi flows into the spirit. And then the spirit does the work. These are all just speculations. Useful speculations based on patterns that seem reliable. I can tell you that when I press on the gallbladder channel and I feel excess tension, more often than not, that person is overthinking things. And more often than not, they're overthinking things because they've got some bone to pick that they haven't picked. <laughs> some bone to pick that they haven't picked. You would think they would. I mean, gallbladder is about courage. You think they would have picked that bone. Well... You know, it's a flood, right? Too much gallbladder chi, way too much. They're overwhelmed by the amount of things that they can choose to do. We know it's about rationality and decision-making, right? And courage, for sure. And so how many times have you gone to the supermarket and seen 20 things that you have to pick from and you're like, oh, screw it. I don't even want to choose. People like three choices, <laughs> you know? 
communications research and marketing research shows that you, people like three choices. That's like the optimal number of choices. It's hilarious. I've got a nephew who lives in Holland, uh, my brother's son. And uh, I remember going to the supermarket with him once. I think he was like in his late teens, early 20s at that point. And uh, we went to the supermarket to get something. And we're standing in front of whatever we went to go buy. And he's like, I have no idea what to do. Because <laughs> it's like, it's like 12 <laughs> different options. He's like, we only got two or three of these back home. It's like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> That's a gallbladder excess. Yeah. Okay, great. That's, wow. Okay, I see it. So America is a very gallbladder excess, you know, with all our choices in the marketplace. Big time. Absolutely. And so I see more often than not, IT band tightness, lateral calf tightness, tension headaches that occur on one side of the head, you know, just from a purely orthopedic standpoint, because people don't come to a massage therapist generally for their digestive problems. Let's say that. Now, I do have clients that come to me for that, and I do some health coaching. And since I practice more of the East Asian medicine bent of things, I tend to get people who have those sort of things. But I think the average massage therapist or body worker, people come in because they're hurt, because they're in pain. And in my experience, every case that I have has some pain, either conscious or unconscious, that's enmeshed in the pattern. So it's hard to deny the patterns that I see. And when you put your hands on the body, you know, you, I mean, you put your hands on the body to assess and to, you know, to feel. I think that's the greatest uh, aid to an acupuncturist is being able to feel with the hands. Agreed. Agreed. Especially because we can so easily go into our heads. I think putting our head, for me, being able to put my hands on people and just settle for a moment. Like, what do my hands have to say? Mm, right. It's like, uh, maybe you're familiar with Shudo Denme. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about finding the alive point. That's right. And it's not usually where the textbook says it is. Well, again, the textbook is a map. You're looking for a point. There's something around here if it's there. Because, you know, sometimes points are asleep. Yeah. Right. Depending on the season, depending on that person's lifestyle habits, as every I mean, it seems like every practitioner that I've talked to knows that points move. They go deep and they come shallow and some are further up and further down the channel and or maybe they're not there at all. There are some people who I'll press on like um, stomach 36, for example, very common point. We use it all the time as practitioners, whether we're using hands or needles. And some people it's like holy shit, that thing hurts. That is tender. And some people don't feel it at all, but they feel it further down or for, or up, you know, on the lateral aspect of the knee, you know, or they can feel a radiating sensation from further up on the thigh down into stomach 36. And it's like, well, you know, tell me about that relationship. I don't think any number of textbooks is going to be able to describe to a practitioner that sensitivity, how to achieve that sort of sensitivity other than to just practice it, feel it, talk with the person. And um, I don't know where I was going with that, but I think it's that the body presents itself through simple orthopedic problems. You know, it hurts here being a simple orthopedic problem. My knee hurts. 
and I need help with it. Just that pattern of where it hurts when you press on it is going to tell you a lot more about the channel system and the organ function, that combined with the pulse maybe, another manual skill, right? very refined manual skill, which acupuncturists are quite good at usually. That's going to tell you more than any theory, just what you feel. And you say, hmm, I noticed that your middle pulse on your left wrist is seems to be really, really up at the surface and jamming. You know, it's tight, stringy, it's wiry, right at the surface, gallbladder. You know, we build these stories about, and this is just one example, of course. Yeah, well, this is, I think this is one of the beauties of practicing this kind of medicine. There's all these reflections, there's all these signals that we can get and put together. You know, you're just describing gallbladder excess kinds of people. I, I see more than a few in my practice. And there's times people come in, they just seem like they're tight as a drum and kind of raging and just, you know, so excess. And I put my hands on their pulse and it's like, oh my God, they're so deficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. They're just empty inside. They're like hangry at a spiritual level. Right. And so isn't that the case? The... uh you learn it through practice. Often the excesses are what's easy to see. Of course. And the deficiencies are the hardest thing to see. It takes a slightly different kind of vision. I think with practice in time, but I would say for sure, at least for me, I notice the excess first and then I have to kind of hunt for the deficiency and, you know, it'll show itself, but you got you to like lift up some rocks and things. What comes to mind when you say that because I, I always like to relate this back to practical, common sense examples, right? For the people, not just the people on the table, but for us too. That when a kid, young kid, is throwing a tantrum, would we consider that to be an excess or a deficiency? <laughs> oh, that's great. I think we'd all say that's an that's an excess. That's up. Uh, that's out. It's young. It's exploding. You know, whoa, big tantrum being thrown here. Well, why does a kid throw a tantrum? Kids don't just throw tantrums just because. They throw tantrums when there's an unmet need. What need is not being met here either? Maybe that kid needs to be listened to. They had a really important idea that you as a parent maybe didn't think was that interesting or that important, but to them, it was the whole world. And the tantrum calms down when you listen to them. Or maybe they needed just some gentle care and love, you know? Maybe they got colic. You know, the kid's throwing a tantrum, but it's because their digestive system is deficient, underfunctioning, gases are building up. It's not moving the right way. You, I think you're right. I think we have to turn over some rocks. What's the thing that's not being fulfilled here? And that's that whole balance of do I, you know, I don't even really even prefer the word sedate, you know, tonify and sedate. Because sedate seems to me like suppressing a symptom and not filling a deficiency. So like, uh, like in Sa'am acupuncture, right, which you're more familiar with. It's all about tonifying first, generally. Enough that I get kind of the principles. Yeah. 
I don't claim to be an expert on on any of this stuff, but if I simplify it and I look at it and I look at the tonification and sedation points, tonify, then sedate. Build up your deficiencies, your constitutional lack, you know, the thing that you're not getting, and then sedate. It works the same way when I'm working with people who are trying to lose weight. Very often people can't lose weight because they don't have the micronutrients and the hormones necessary to do all those reactions and all that work to get rid of the excess. Their body will get rid of the excess as soon as they have the capacity, hormonally, nutritionally, to lose that. Their body will take care of the process in many cases. But um, if you're not getting enough electrolytes, how is there enough electrical potential to make chemical reactions happen in the cell? How do you detox through your liver and your kidneys and your, and your intestines and your skin if you don't have that life force? It's electrical potential. So we build the life force. Coming back to that, we build the life force up through chi cultivation practices, either ones they do at home or ones that we give them, or we reduce the blockages, increase the chi in other areas. Then the life force, the chi, takes over and the excesses can come down naturally. It sounds so simple when you put it that way. Why does it have to be complicated? We like to go overcomplicate things. I think that's why we have, as a culture, we have an addiction to overcomplicating things, gallbladder excess, again. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. I'm really curious about your senses of excess and deficiency for each of the uh, constellations. Of course, the book is available for that. Um, I remember in reading through it, yeah, you've got some really interesting ideas. I'm going to say, for me, they were a little bit challenging, but just because I've already got ideas in my head about what certain excesses or deficiencies look like. And so making room for another lens to look at the same issue through is, uh, you know, it takes a little bit of time. So I'm glad I've got a copy of the book. Something that I noticed that you did with the pairings of the organs, 
it, it's something all of us know if we've studied acupuncture, but usually we don't put these things together. Your entire, I'm going to say, riff, your entire way of explaining one organ through its sort of opposite so that you can see both the yin and the yang and the hot and the cold and the gallbladder and the heart, because we were talking about that, your entire sense of how organs function together, at least in the book, is through the clock opposites, which again, we study about it in school. It's kind of an interesting thing, but man, you take the deep dive into that stuff. What led you to that perspective? What drew you into looking at it that way? Because we're sitting here and having this conversation right now, and you are very fluent and descriptive in, well, here's your gallbladder, and there's your heart, and here's, here's how one's excess and the other one's deficient. You've got some clarity on that. What drew you to looking at the clock opposites as a productive lens? Hmm. Well, I think to, to clarify, there's also so much to be gained from looking at other pairings besides clock opposites, like you say, the more traditional approaches that an acupuncturist would look at. If you're looking at the gallbladder, of course, you're going to be looking at the wood element pairing with the liver. That's very common. And then you'll also be looking at it from a Xiaoyang perspective, right? And those are lenses that are, that are very most acupuncturists are very fluid, fluent in. We know that constellation. Right. And that's, like you say, that's the idea that you have present in you. Well, I don't have the, the, uh, the burden of four years of acupuncture school. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> so I can walk through the walls, so to speak, right? And I'm also, be, being a massage therapist, nobody considers me to be a, uh, what's the word? A reliable authority on the subject per se because i didn't do the thing and then get the letters that got me the result of the acupuncture license so so to me the clock opposites what drew me to them was this it was first an intuitive sort of understanding that when the one organ system is most active say at uh well look 11 p.m to 1 a.m let's look you know that clock you know of course, it's not a, there's no lines there, right? It's not a clearly delineated thing. Your gallbladder's working all the time. But if that clock position is happening 11 to 1, it makes sense to me through that law of polarity and yin and yang, which we all love to come back to because it's so useful. There must be another organ system that's not functioning as much at that time. It just seems so intuitive and so so simple, or maybe even oversimplified. And so when I took that as a possibility that, okay, I'm not seeing a lot of literature about clock opposites and how they work together. Like you said, it's not really part of the, the lineage per se to look at those things. I mean, we... Well, it's, I mean, it, it is in that we're shown the clock and, oh, here's the, the Zhu Qi clock and, you know, oh, cool, look, there's different energy and different organs. And sometimes we'll look at things like, oh, look, they're having this urinary problem at the time of the urinary bladder. Okay, that's, you know, that might be useful. But yes, you, I, I think you're right. 
we it, it's almost more like a curiosity than often used map. But yeah, I like it. Like you know, like you said, you don't have the burden of four years of acupuncture school, so you can walk through walls. Right. Yeah. And so I got to pursue my curiosity, mostly uh, also because I'm not, you know, I'm not being paid to write this book. I'm writing it out of my own pocket. You know, hopefully sell so many copies that I get paid for it, and I'm open to that. But like I said, it was an exploration into my own process, which I think everybody can benefit from. So, so I see these clock opposites. I look at each one of the organs and each one of the channels individually first, and I say, okay, well, what's the nature of the lung, for example? The start of the clock, right? And so it's 3 to 5 a.m., first thing, waking up in the morning, right? Setting boundaries. And as we know, in Chinese medicine, the lung governs the immune system and the sinuses and the skin, and there's all these other relationships that are happening physically. And so I said, well, what's the nature of the lung? the essential nature of it. And I explored the literature and my own understanding and did a lot of breath work. And well, it, it, it seems to me that the lung is all about boundary setting, having flexible, but not too permeable boundaries. And that quality of boundary setting, right, of, of being able to accept the things that we want and block ourselves from the things that we don't want. I saw that in the lung and I said, wow, this is like, if I could give an archetype name to it, you know, give it a character, something that, you know, that I could name it by and signify it by, well, I call it the shield. Right. That's the name of that constellation. So I said, okay, well, that's the shield. So that's what that does. And that, that's just for me, right? I said, okay, well, this seems to me like a good name for it. And it, it's a ping. It helps me remember everything that the lungs associated with because it's a, a storybook character, this archetype that has its own meaning and substance and poetry about it. So I said, okay, well, if this is what the shield is, what's the opposite on the clock? Well, it's the urinary bladder. So I took for, as a starting point and I said, okay. Clearly, the clock opposites are talked about, but not very much. Let me understand the essential qualities of the urinary bladder. And I did the same thing and on and on. And I said, okay, well, that's the sentinel. I said, how does that, that relates to the shield. Wow, these two things are kind of related. You know, the bladder is this, it runs along the back. It's like the hackles on a, on a dog that pop up whenever there's any sense of impending danger. The bladder channel has more points than any other channel, right? It connects through related points with every other channel and every other organ. And I said, okay, well, this is like the watcher. It's checking everything out. It's like the first line of defense. So that's the sentinel. It's looking, it's watching at the wall. So the shield and the sentinel work together, right? And they have this dialogue that's happening. They're, they're complementary functions. And so I looked at that and I said, okay, well, those two seem similar. And then I went to the next one. I went to the large intestine and the kidney. And those became the father and the mother archetype, right? For different reasons, which I explain in the book. And I said, okay, well, those things are clearly related to large intestine and the kidney to me. I can see these similarities and it's on and on through the clock. And I iterated these names in a way that they would sort of make sense to me. And, oh, no, that's not quite the name. And then I changed it again. Not quite the name. I changed it again. So, oh, that's it. Right. So the, uh, 
the gallbladder and the heart to return to that example real quick. The gallbladder is the logician and the heart is the mystic. So it's rationality and spirit. Rationality and spirit, they're not exclusive, they're complementary. And we talk about heart shin and how the spirit and how the heart is the emperor. And it's this like divine connection. But what does the emperor have? The emperor has ministers to go get shit done. We often talk about that being the pericardium, but I can see how that fits with the gallbladder. You know, I so appreciate your creativity with this. Going, having gone to Chinese medicine school and having the burden of that four years of study, you know, I come away with images of like, well, the, uh, the liver is the general and the spleen is the minister of grains. And I'm like, who the fuck talks like that these days? We don't even like generals, you know? You know, king, the king, the emperor, we don't like kings. You know, get rid of the kings, you know, those privileged bastards. Out with the king, off with their head. Right, it isn't king a title, right? It's a title that we gave it. But we don't really use those metaphors. We don't really use those images in our everyday life. So I appreciate that you've taken this creative jaunt into looking into the functions, in this case through the clock, although you could have gone through any of the other ways that the channels relate, but in this way through the clock and like, okay, so what is the name of these things and their function in a counterbalance across the clock sort of way? That's it's both very creative and at the same time, Jason, it's rooted in the fundamentals of what this stuff is. You just happen to give your own language to it. And, you know, is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. You and I are having a discussion. You're explaining it to me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That follows. Huh. I'm going to go look for that in the clinic. Next time someone's all gallbladder excess on me, I'm going to get more curious about their heart. And see for yourself. If, if the only thing that comes from that exploration, Michael, is that you realize that your theories and your previous approaches were more sound for you and your practice, then I would consider that to be the highest compliment that you could give me. <laughs> well, you know, I love your, uh, your phrase, full-throttled curiosity. You know, it's so true. And whether it's medicine or relationships or cooking or, you know, whatever we're doing, Take a look. What is this? Let's explore. Maybe you learn something new. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to use this. Or maybe you come up with, yeah, I dig what I got. I'm glad I looked, but I'm good with what I got. Yeah, that, uh, that willingness, that openness to, let's see what else might be here. That's, well, I mean, that for me is the juice. It's what keeps me in, in clinical practice. So I, I appreciate that, that spirit of your book coming through and, and especially this conversation. Man, this has been a great conversation. I'm so grateful for you. Well, you know, I, the podcast exists because there's interesting people to talk to. If it was, if it was just me talking, I've got about 20 minutes of material and then I'm done, you know, but there's something about like noodling through medicine. That's just fascinating. You know, especially if someone's taking the time like you to noodle through it a bit and, and come up with something enough that you could actually put it into a book. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, dialogue's the, uh, the oldest form of teaching, isn't it? I suspect it is. We're just talking about stuff. We're just talking about stuff. Do you see that pattern in this guy? Uh-huh. Whoa, that was there last night, but now it's different. It's in a different spot. <laughs> Tell, show me somebody who knows it all about Chinese medicine, East Asian medicine, body work, nutrition. Yeah, nobody. Anything worthwhile. There's no end to it. Amen. Yeah. Well, hey, we should probably wind this down. I've got, uh, I got a couple other quick questions. Okay. All right. I, I want to try something new. I'm trying this on you. All right. First time we tried it. I've been listening to some other podcasts lately, Barry Weiss in particular, and she always has a, a thing at the end. She calls it a lightning round. Just a couple of quick questions. And if I was better prepared, I would have written these down, but I don't. So I'm just going to do this extemporaneously. A couple of quick questions. Lightning round, okay? Fire away. What's the book you're reading right now? Tao Te Ching. What's your most favorite book of all time? The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Latest music that you went, whoa. I've never heard anything quite like this. Rising Appalachia band. They're a folk band. Very good. So powerful. Interesting you should say that. Yes, I heard them recently. Yeah, okay, Rising Appalachia. Okay, favorite snack? Plantain chips and peanut butter. Dude, are we from the same family? We must be. Bananas and peanut butter is good, too. <laughs> peanut butter on damn near anything. <laughs> Amen. Okay, biggest question you have about Chinese medicine? How simple can we make this? All right. And... uh Final lightning round question. What can bring a little more love into the world? Loving yourself. And all your cracks and crevices and things that you don't love right now. Love those and then the love will go. It'll flow into the world just by our actions. Jason Brazil, this has been a blast. Michael Max, real pleasure. You know, so often we look to understand our medicine by looking toward the East and maybe squint a look into the history of other doctors' experience as well. It can be fruitful for sure. So it rather tickled my funny bone to be talking to a cat from Podunk, Texas, about his perspectives. Our medicine, it has a history, but it is the way that it comes alive in the present moment that gives it its potency. I really enjoyed Jason's book. His archetypes challenged me a bit at first, and then I came to appreciate the insights that he had and the courage to write it down. Perhaps most of all, he talks about something that I think underlies many of our practices, even if we're shy to talk about it. He reminds us of the central importance of love in our work. That's a journey that I always want to take. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.